Hello and welcome to episode 44 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike, focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line, the godfather himself, Dave Harberger. I am really tired this week from all the untapping and tapping I've been doing. <laughs> it's been it's been a rough week. I'm tapped. I'm tapped. Also with us, it's the warden, Zach. Call hand. If it comes down to it, I think I prefer scrambled over poached, but I do like poached. Because we're talking eggs this week. You know, I had a couple soft-boiled eggs this morning. Hey. Like a real 70-year-old man. <laughs> I just like to have something to dip my bread into. Do a soft boil. Oh, the image, the sound, the smell. I dip the bread into the yolk. I mean, I think that's a great moment if you if you have time to do that. But in my uh, modern go, go, go lifestyle, I got to hard boil these eggs. Shannon is on week two of his European sojourn, but we'll return next week. We kick off the show this week with a breakdown from SCG Indianapolis. Then we dive into our long-awaited Urza episode, just in time too, since this new Urza deck already feels poised to take the title of the most hated deck in modern. We'll start with Paradoxical Urza, then pay homage to the Ascendancy and Whir builds. In classic deck dive style, we'll explain how these builds operate, what makes them unique decks, and finally just how to battle against the blue menace entirely. Finally, we wind down with a listener question, but first, some housekeeping. Big hello and thank you to our newest patrons, Bob P, Shane R, Justin C, Ryan P, and Mark A. So cool of you all to join the Dive Down Nation. We appreciate all the support. Also, thanks to Frankie's 09 for the very friendly review on Apple Podcasts, all the way from the Philippines, which is super cool. As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can check out patreon.com slash the dive down, or you can check out manatraders.com and sign up there with promo code the dive down, all one word, to get 10% off your first three months of Mana Traders software. Rent magic cards, support the dive down, everybody wins. If you're not sure what Mana Traders or Patreon is, this might be your first time listening to the dive down, in which case, welcome. Hello, our esteemed and honored guest. Now let's jump over to my colleague, David, who's at the news desk this week. Dave, Motor City, how'd it go? I mean, was it fun? It seemed kind of fun. Uh, well, I mean, here's the thing. So this week, we're going to take a quick look at Star City Games Indianapolis, which was a modern open. It's nice to see a modern main event for the first time in a few weeks, right? I, I feel like there's been kind of a little bit of uh, missing out on where the metagame is going, where some of the new cards from Eldraine were popping up and other things like that. We get a lot of information week over week on Magic Online, but there hasn't been a paper event in a minute, so it's good to see. I think the best place for us to start is to take a look at the Day 2 meta, which was super interesting. So 138 decks made Day 2. Um, and here's a list of decks with five or more players on day two leading the field were these three decks each one was piloted by 12 players which is 8.6 percent of the field so each one of these decks had 8.6 percent of the field amulet titan urza ascendancy and jund all with 12 players apiece what do you think about that top tier casual spikes modern players love mid-range fair decks with lots of decisions and that's what jund definitely is amulet titan Kind of also lots of decisions there. Do you think even Titan's a fair deck though? Because 
as someone who has been losing a lot against Amulet and Titan, I no longer believe it is fair, as I have been personally targeted and persecuted. I don't know what is or isn't fair anymore. Amulet and <laughs> Titan's fine, I think. That's a non-answer, but okay. <laughs> it gets stopped by Blood Moon, so how bad can it be? But it doesn't. Mm, but it doesn't. Do you think Amulet Titan was designed spef- specifically to target you, Zach? That's what it sounds like. You know, we there's some B-roll that's going to get cut where I kind of razzed you, and I think I'm getting razzed. So. <laughs> well, no one no one gets to hear where I'm being made fun of for good reason. They only get to hear where you're being made fun of for good reason. <laughs> Listeners, one day these tapes will come out, and I swear I'll be vindicated when they do. Exactly. It's pretty interesting. Amulet Titan and Urza, obviously, both combo decks, uh, essentially, when it comes down to it. I feel like it's been a long time since we've seen Jund at the top of the day two, two meta, or even tied at the top of the day two meta. I know it's been poking around a little bit, but I don't know if it's been quite in that kind of 10-ish percent ballpark uh, recently or not. No, it's been a little lower. It has been around, though, and, like, I think it's been competitive since Modern Horizons, or rather it's been, like, Tier 1 since Modern Horizons. So I think this is, like, whoa, Jund had, you know, tied for first place. That's pretty intense. But I don't think this is, like, out of left field or anything. What amazes me is just the sheer number of Urza players there are because it's such an expensive deck, you know, unless all of these people used to be playing like Thopter Sword or the War of Invention builds or something. KCI, yeah. Yeah, I guess. But that's a lot of people picking up Opals and Urzas. Yeah. Well, you had Opals for KCI, right? So you have these people lurking in the trenches just waiting to strike. Ugh. And that's not even all the Urza, because if we look at the next uh, tier down or the next couple tiers down, uh, with 11 pilots, Monogreen Tron was f- in fourth place uh, in the meta. With a, also with 11 pilots, Burn was in fifth. And then in sixth place, we had Urza Outcome with eight pilots. So if you combine those two together, you have 20 Urza decks on day two, which would have been 17.9% of the field. That's a lot of the field. For a day two? Yeah. And that's not even including the players on four-color War of Invention Urza. That number actually is including the the players on on four color were so there were five players on four color were as well uh so the grand total was 17.9 percent for urza deck is good i mean can you blame people for trying to spike a local tournament with what's very possibly the best deck in modern right now i don't know if i'd call scg india local tournament you know there are people kind of traveled from all over for it and there's a lot of people who are into it it had a pretty big turnout it's local to me therefore it must be local to all but like is it local <laughs> it's like a four-hour drive from chicago so it's in the crossroads of America, I think, if I remember right. So that would be... Well, Motor City, yeah, where the rubber meets the road. Right. Also where I-70 and I-69 cross each other, right? That's the crossroads. I hope those are the numbers. Gosh. Yeah, it definitely w- stopped and made me have a look when I saw all of those Urza decks together. Uh, just to round out the list of all the entries that we had over five, Grixis Death Shadow had six decks, Eldrazi Tron had five decks, and as I mentioned, Four Color Wars I had also had five decks. One thing that was really interesting, these nine decks together were 58.8% of the meta. So that's kind of top-heavy, I think, in, in my mind, although the list of singletons, affectionately known as Other, was clearly the, the leader in the field and had many more than 12 decks. I think when I counted the list, there were around 30 uh, one-off decks on day two. So that was you know close to... T- 20 uh, you know somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the field just in other but yeah if you break it down a little bit more there were 16.5 percent of day two were big mana decks between amulet titan and monogreen tron that's not counting eldrazi tron so count that or not uh mid-range was 12.9 percent if you kind of lump together jund and grixis death shadow in a, a bucket together there's even this jund death shadow list in the top eight we're going to talk about yep 
Sweet Deck. I remember that one from back in the day. And uh, why don't we hop into the top eight? So I think we have a, some notes on the individual decks in the top eight. So maybe we'll just take it kind of uh, from the top in order from winner to bottom. And we'll kind of talk about each deck for a minute. Again, since it's been a little bit of time since we've done a breakdown, let's get into it. So the winner of SCG Indie was Drake Sasser with Gifts Storm. Gifts Storm. Turn three wins. What's not to love? Every time. Every time. That's been my experience playing Storm is that it always wins on turn three. Exactly. Do you think it's that Storm is very good or looking at the rest of the seven decks in this top eight, Storm got to the top eight and then had a bunch of good matchups? I will say I've played more than a usual amount of Storm over the last couple of weeks online, played against it. And have you been hiding this from me, David? Uh, I think I mentioned it on the last episode when we were talking about combo decks and Kiki Jiki and stuff like that. Oh, well, I don't remember that. Um, I think it's reasonably well positioned right now. It's definitely like an outlet for all those blue red spells mages who are looking for something to do with their uh, with their cards. Um, it just feels like uh non-creature combo is a pretty good spot to be right now since there's not really that many people on a ton of counter magic but um that's something to think about i mean even blue white control is shifted to a more proactive plan with stoneforge mystic and so they're spending some of their resources setting up those kind of plays and so you know maybe getting a spell off now is something that's good again the first place winner and something i've been seeing online a lot lately is main deck echoing truth so for those unfamiliar with this card, it's one in a blue, two mana, for an instant. Return target non-land permanent and all other permanents with the same name as that permanent to their owner's hands. So this is good for stopping, you know, a dampening sphere from any from going off, a blood moon. I've also had it bounce bridges to have goblins get underneath. And the thing is, your opponent can't double up on their threats or their lock pieces, so it's harder to remove them because it gets rid of all of them. So I found this to be very good versus me, obviously, but I think this is just really good in the meta in general right now. I think the the amount of card in the Great Creator that is around right now makes this a good card because all the little sideboard bolts that they can bring in against you are easy to bounce now. Yeah, and I think putting this in the main deck in Sasha's list was a great meta call considering the amount of tokens that a lot of the top tier decks are winning with right now, whether they're servos, thopters, or even 2-2 zombies from Field of the Dead. Yeah, I think this is all great, but this is a card, you need one of these when you play Storm. You need a card like this main deck when you play Storm every time, whether it's unsubstantiate, where you're going to like have it be a, a, a remand or whatever, or something like this that bounces problematic permanence, because um, you know people sometimes pack main main deck hate or main deck spells hate here and there are just cards that are good against you things like chalice of the void and things like ensnaring bridge and so you really need an out when you play storm to be able to do that and the thing that i think is interesting about this particular build is that it only has one echoing truth but it does have three merchant scrolls that can search this card up so the ability to be able to find this card when you need it, when you're about to go off so that at the end of your opponent's turn, you can kind of be like, I'm going to lift your whatever, and then I'm going to go off after that. I mean, it's kind of like a normal play pattern and give storm and something that I think echoing truth is a really good card to have in that slot. Yeah, it's definitely been in the sideboard. Like I've mentioned before, Storm is actually my first modern deck when I bought in, and I loved having them in the side. I think having it main is not new, but feels just like, oh, like maybe this is just the way it is now. Like it, it's always main instead of a sideboard option. So I recall Merchant Scroll was a staple, basically, when Gift Storm first emerged, and then it kind of went out of vogue. 
And I wonder whether it's becoming more popular now, or at least Sasser decided to run it just because it's such a great way to find cards like Echoing Truth or Gifts Ungiven or Pass in Flames. I think it's just an instant, so it'd have to be gifts and given. It's also just blue cards, by the way. Merchant Scroll only only gets blue instants. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting as just a great value tool to get you exactly what you need to either get out of a sticky situation while also maybe getting you the last piece you need to combo off. Yeah, the targets that this that Merchant Scroll has in this deck are only Echoing Truth, Opt, Remand, and uh, Gifts. So it's a pretty small kit that you have that you can search up with it. Nine times out of 10, you're going to be searching up uh, Gifts Ungiven. Of course, they're redundant copies of that. Gifts Ungiven is super important. But it's nice to have that ability to slide into getting your anti-hate card. I think Merchant Scroll is also contributing to this effect I'm noticing and, and contributing to myself with there being more tutorable or searchable cards via that the Karn Wishboard. Uh, via a thing like that new fairy mentioned last episode with the Knowledge Pool Lock that Stan mentioned via the scheming symmetry or just a lot of other things are going on and also the witch's claw from Eldraine is seeing play there's just a lot of different things going on and i feel like modern there's a lot more library manipulation or, or card searching than there was before and then and decks that didn't have access to it like mine mono red prison now has option to a whole bevy of things yeah interesting thought so that's the winner gift storm i i you know kind of glad to see it back uh we'll see if it stays in second and third place, we had Will Pulliam and Zach Allen on Amulet Titan. Yeah, Will's deck, pretty stock. Zach's deck, lots of very fun sideboard technology here. It had one Manglehorn, which is an uncommon from Amoncat. Two and a green for a 2-2 beast that destroys target artifact on ETB. And artifacts opponent controls enter tapped. Along with two Oko Thief of Crowns, because why shouldn't Amulet get to play Painswalkers too? Totally makes sense. One thing I would love to point out on both of these lists as well is that they are both running a four pack of of Once Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. So this is the emergence of one of the cards that everybody thought would get played in modern. And this seems to be the first home where it's definitely a four pack. Absolutely. I feel a little bit like the power of Ensnaring Bridge has gone down drastically lately because of how many answers there are. Like Manglehorn, just silly against it. And Oko, especially, I played a lot and it just shuts me down. So I feel like there's a, a brief moment in time where Prison was well presented. Even the Karn package is weakened because you're always running Staring Bridge as an option for the most part. It's a great get to help you when you're you know on the back for whatever. But I feel like there are just so many options for it now and so many good on-plan synergistic options that I wonder if Karn's like starting to get hated out a little bit. I also think with regard to Manglehorn, it's the static ability that makes it so useful because it makes it much harder for the Urza players to use their thopters or servos their eggs whatever to produce mana with urza himself exactly the answers have become more ubiquitous and more not modal but have utility across the board yeah awesome in fourth place we had burn by uh brian carey was the pilot of that list and it looked pretty stock to us so i think you know burn is good let's move along yeah (laughs) in fifth place was jonathan hobbs on jund death's shadow Yeah, so I've noticed this deck popping up pretty consistently ever since Once Upon a Time got printed, basically serving, I think, as extra copies of Traverse the Uldenwald in this deck. My opinion is the plan here is just to be a more aggressive version of Jund that essentially gets to cast Tarmogoyf instead of Gurmog Angler. Otherwise, it's basically an aggressive mid-range deck with lots of removal, hand disruption, even a single main deck Liliana the Veil. So pretty fair, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, I kind of just think Death Shadow is really good. 
right now and all the different builds i think are good in their own their own way grixis has got some energy going back mardu i think is still a reasonable entry on the list i think uh jund is is just a good like you said aggressive version of it i wonder how good two of once upon a time is but uh we will see right i found it to be a pretty useful card uh last week when i was playing it and this seems like a deck that has enough um it has a lower creature count and lower land count than the decks that i was playing it in so it's interesting to see it in a deck with kind of less hits so in general i agree that death shadows is a very strong creature obviously i would probably hate to see my urza opponent play a single engineered explosive though yeah and those decks are running four ee now so i can see a little bit of meta tension there for sure sixth place was oliver tomiko with urza ascendancy hey we're going to talk about this deck a lot later yeah oliver had two main deck mirrored and besieged as yet another win condition and i think in fact with this card what's interesting is both modes serve as a viable win condition what are the both modes of mirrored and besieged because i'm not as familiar with this card so the mirrored side makes a mirror token every time you cast an artifact so it's an extra token generator Okay. Exactly. And the Besiege side is a you win if you have 15 artifacts in your graveyard. And we should note this is a three mana enchantment, two in a blue. And when it comes into play, you choose one of these effects. It's pretty interesting. It, do, it does actually feel on plan when you mention it that way. I had my opponent locked out of the game and I didn't have a threat for a while. And they drew about 30 cards until they found this card and won the game. So it's pretty good. Bam. Oliver also had three Oko in the side. We are now up to five Oko in the top eight, all of them in the sideboards. Hashtag Oko Watch 2019. Seventh place, Zhao Tan on Selesnya Eldrazi or Green White Eldrazi Stoneblade. This deck was also running for Once Upon a Times. Um, it wasn't printed when Allie Warfield was on her run with this deck a couple of weeks ago. I think it's a cool deck to have it in, mostly because searching up a... Eldrazi Temple is pretty sweet as an option if you want to. Um, a lot of utility in a deck that's running Soul Lands as part of it as well. Yeah, I'm kind of hopeful that we can soon either do an analysis on a deck or the card itself. But Once Upon a Time strikes me as a card that's actually more challenging to play than people might realize. Because I think it's very tempting to cash it in as early as possible. But there's probably some nuances on when it's actually right to play, whether you want to lead with a land, try to find new lands, etc. Yeah, for our second math episode, Dave can have a backdoor pilot. So it's just once upon a time, but really more math. I mean, I talked about once upon a time a lot in conjunction with, with Kiki last week. Was that not enough? Was that too specialized? The people want more and the people are me and Stan. They want more story time. Yeah, sure. Once upon more times, please. And then in eighth place... Alex Zorowski on Dredge. Basically a stock list, but with Merchant of the Veil is Faithless Looting, which seems to be the way that most people are going on Dredge, as we mentioned. I think one thing that was super interesting was that it in the player profiles area, and this kind of like plays into the decks that we're talking about today, you know, when they announce a top eight, they do these top eight profiles, and the they asked everybody for their hot takes on the modern format, and several people in the top eight said Mox Opal should be banned, and another several people said that Urza's paradoxical version is a bad deck, and that Urza is better, even though the paradoxical Urza was the largest deck in the day two field. So, interesting little tease for our dive down, but... um I kind of thought that was funny and on topic hot takes from the top eight members of this tournament. 
So uh, continue on Stan's suggestion from last week about the breakdown. We're going to try to make sure that we send everybody with a little parting gift at the end of these segments, the things that we think are important for our listeners to know from the this tournament and from kind of like what we've seen in the meta this week. I'll go first. The thing that I think is most important is that you should be ready for Urza. If people around you aren't playing it now, they're going to be playing it sooner rather than later. And so hopefully the deck dive that we have later today will help you. But clearly the meta at Indy was heavy in Urza, and I think anywhere you play it will be. The second thing I'd love to point out really quick is that the Eldraine cards that were in the top eight of the Opener Classic were Once Upon a Time, which is in the Selesnya Eldrazi list, Jund, Death Shadow, and also Amulet, like we said. Emery is in the Urza deck. Mystic Sanctuary, four of, is in the blue-white control deck that won the Classic. There were Okos in sideboards, Mystical Disputes in the sideboards, uh, Merchant of the Veil and Dredge. And so those seem to be the cards that are popping the most consistently on in um, from Eldraine. And I guess the last one I should mention is, and I just want to check and make sure that Amulet Titan was running it, is Castle Garenbrig from Eldraine as well. Those seem to be the most pervasive cards. One of the things that jumped out to me, and I think this has been true for the last few weeks, is that Amulet Titan is solid right now. And I wonder if this is because all these combo and mid-range decks can't run a ton of land hate. So whether it's Field of the Dead or a gussied up Primeval Titan, given enough time, this deck seems to just get there. I, I totally agree. I think that that this style of creature combo seems very good. My experience so far, just having played Urza for this, is that Urza is actually pretty good against Amulet Titan, and so I'll be curious to see what that head-to-head matchup really is for everybody. It seems like a lot of very good players are choosing to go back to Amulet instead of going to Urza, so maybe they have different testing results, you know, or have real testing results, which I don't have. I have anecdotal results, but um, I still think it's a really good deck right now, yeah, and it got powered up by, by Eldraine a little bit. Yeah, my final note is that this Jun Death Shadow list in the top eight strikes me as a very LGS-style deck in terms of this is a play style that I think a lot of modern players generally enjoy, where if you're the type of person who owns Death Shadow and owns a Jun deck, you can basically shuffle them together, and this is a strategy to try. A lot of similar concepts from both of those decks, but operating on a more aggressive axis. Yeah, I think the key there for me is that uh, Thoughtseize, I personally, I mentioned this last week, I think Thoughtseize decks are really good right now too. And this is still one that gets to run Thoughtseize and also have a really assertive plan. And so I think those are two really positive things. Motor City was fun. I came, I saw, I raced. Everyone, we take a quick break. When we come back, there's going to be some Urza happening. Some artifacts being tapped for mana. Some decks being shuffled. Some Zacks getting frustrated. Stay with us. The time has finally come. Here by popular demand, some people on Reddit were asking us every week, names will not be named. We've invited the Lord High Artificer himself to join us on the podcast. He politely declined on account of being deceased. But we're going to talk about him anyway. It's Urza week. Fellas, did you like playing this deck? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think everybody knew that Urza was a powerful card the moment it was spoiled. Is that right? Yes. My issue is not the power level of the deck. It is clearly there. Yes. I mean, we we saw the infinite combo. And and by we, I mean modern players, not necessarily the 
players of the, on the dive down. We saw the infinite combo potential as soon as it was spoiled, because at that point, War of Invention, Thopter combo was a deck. Right. And it was a shoo-in. Yeah, absolutely. And it was just so clear, you know, this is one of those cards that was in Modern Horizons that was like, it's going to be four converted mana costs. It's going to have four different relevant abilities or something like that. I mean, this one has three. Um, and so I think it's just kind of like, yeah, this was definitely a card that's going to be modern power level. It's definitely going to be hugely defining. And guess what? Here we are three months later, and it is format defining right now. I think it's a fair question. Why Why do we think it's taken us so long to want to talk about this deck? That's a very good question. I don't think it's been for lack of power level. I think personally for me, the deck was a little intimidating to get into. And I felt like it was a little overwhelming. And I felt like either, honestly, I was hedging my bets that I'd get banned before we could cover it. And that did not come to pass. So push came to shove and I had to put up or shut up. And I put up. That's hilarious. I mean, I think for me, I'm just not a person who owns Mox Opals. And so I never look at Mox Opal decks as a place to start, right? I mean, I love, I, Moxes are amazing to play with and they're super powerful when you get them to go off and all that kind of stuff. But um, it's just kind of not my style. And the deck that you have to play in order to make Mox Opal good is generally not something that I've been interested in outside of the aggro versions. Like I kind of like the the affinity slash hardened scales kind of decks, but this is like a whole thing that I totally feel what you said, Zach, where you're kind of like, this deck seems intimidating. I think it's interesting too, you know, we're going to about to put together a ton of content about the Urza deck, and we've really only had maybe a couple of weeks to play it as a group. And that's just similar to when we talked about blue-white control on here. I feel like that's just not enough time to really become masters of this deck that has so many complicated options, so many things you can do. And so... You know, we are going to cut through this and put together as many takeaways as we can, but I don't think we can say that this is a comprehensive guide to how to pilot this deck at the highest, highest level. Do we offer that for any of the deck dives, though? I don't think we're ever saying this is a comprehensive anything, really. Our mono red prison deck was pretty comprehensive, Zach. That's true. You know, I always like to keep my bases covered as far as getting angry posts on Reddit, so. <laughs> Dear sirs, again, you mistake the purpose of the deck. And the dive down. <laughs> Stan, why did why did you uh, sort of drag your feet on pushing for us to do this one? Well, the absolute practical reason is that you need a gold mana traders account to rent this deck. And I, like my co-hosts, don't have any of these cards in paper. And, you know, basically what Dave said, Mox Oval decks are never something I really pay attention to. So until recently, I didn't have a gold account. And now that I, once I got one, I think that's when we started getting way more serious about putting this episode together because it was something that we all felt like we had to. Maybe we were dragging our feet because on some level we didn't want to. But listen, we're here to make the most comprehensive podcast for modern casual spikes there is by briefly touching on as many decks as possible. Yes. See, I got worried. Then I heard all the caveats and then I was on board. There you go. And so I think in a format where there's cheap artifacts, a powerful mox or two, and a few decks with a history of being artifact, controlish, dependent, triggering style of cards. It shouldn't be a surprise that this card is led to a few different archetypes. And uh, similar to what we often do here, we bit off a little bit too much. And we are going to talk about all two asterisk archetypes of Urza decks that there are right now. That's right. We're talking Paradoxical Urza. We're talking Paradoxical Ascendancy. And we're talking Warza in the end, the home favorite. 
Ah, where's that? Uh, where's that? Yeah. And so we'll get into the differences of those decks, differences between those decks. But just as a top level, the Paradoxical Urza deck is basically an Artifact Matters Tokens deck that uses cheap artifacts to generate a mana advantage or a creature advantage that you can use to do things like draw your whole deck, take all the turns, trigger Urza a million times, and find your answer, etc. It's close sibling, the Paradoxical Ascendancy deck has the additional potential from the addition of the card Jeskai Ascendancy, which we'll talk about how it's on plan, how it adds to the deck, and things like that. And then with Wurza, we'll talk about the version that's a bit more of a kind of prison control vibe that closes using the Thopter Sword combo to win. But before we get into it, I think we kind of have to start with what makes up the core of all of these decks. Is it the Big Daddy himself? Exactly. The first card is the Lord High... Artificer himself, Urza. Is he three mana? No, it's four mana. Is he five mana? No, he's four. Okay. I think four is what makes it immediately a fair card. Mm, You think this card is fair? (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk really quickly about what Urza does. Urza is two generic, blue, blue, for a one four. When Urza enters a battlefield, create a zero, zero colorless construct artifact creature token with this creature gets plus one, plus one for each artifact you control. So that's the first ability. Obviously, in a deck that runs many cheap artifacts, which we'll talk about in a little bit, for little to no cost, the constructs get huge and can almost constitute a win con on their own. For anyone unfamiliar, they're called constructs, as the card Karn, Scion of Urza from Dominaria, had a minus that made these. So they were named after him, and they're the same exact token, so hence the name. But yes, these are very, very good. I found that beating down with these as a win con was perfectly legitimate, and I won a plenty of games that way. Yep. The second ability Urza has is tap an untapped artifact you control, add a blue mana. So turns all of your artifacts into mox sapphires. It's pretty good. Stan, you like moxes. You like mox sapphire. I was just saying last week, any day now, the moxen are joining modern family. Here they are. Exactly. One thing that I think is super interesting about these, and and let me ask you guys a little thought experiment here. If these said, this creature gets plus one, plus one for each non-creature artifact you control, or you could only tap non-creature artifacts to make blue mana, would the card be a little less broken? Because it certainly felt that way to me when I was playing this. Every time I was doing that, I was like, I can't believe that I can tap these Thopter tokens for mana, or and they make my constructs bigger. Yeah, it's hard to exactly quantify what needs to change for this card not to be so incredibly bonkers, but it is incredibly bonkers. And like, is it that it can only make this kind of thing or only tabs this or it costs seven and doesn't and shuffles twice or I don't know what kind of balancing you put up this card, but two of the abilities are already unreal and would be a, a playable modern card. And there's a third hidden ability. Well, not hidden. Well, hidden below other text we haven't got to yet yeah i think a lot of people maybe do forget about this one which is the last ability is five colorless just an activated ability no tap symbol why should you yeah why should you because you can do it more than once with all those artifacts you're tapping um shuffle your library exile the top card play it without paying the mana cost now do timing restrictions apply they do they do apply we didn't get that reminder text but timing restrictions do apply I, I, that's my favorite reminder text. I hope we get it on everything. Um, yeah, I mean, this is amazing too, because it's just five mana to just play a random card from your deck, which is pretty sweet. 
I can hit lands. And like, it's so wild that they've given red abilities kind of like this, where it was exile and you may cast it, but only right now during the small window. And they're just like, nah, exile it. And like whenever you want, you can go ahead and take care of it. Yeah, the fact that this lets you play lands pretty much taught me to hold my lands when I was playing this deck, especially if I had the option to turn Urza on. Basically, getting a land out of your library is better than getting a land out of your hand. So, Zach, what do you think about Urza overall? I mean, I've been saying it. It's very good. It's really, really good. I think I am probably the person who calls for bands the most on this show. I listen to a few episodes around Hogak time, and I am ringing those alarm bells nonstop, heavy duty. <sighs> it just feels like some real vintage stuff and we'll get into exactly why that is shortly but these three decks don't feel like i'm playing against a modern deck like it feels like i'm meeting someone for like a casual game somewhere like yeah all i have is this like you know semi-competitive legacy deck it's not a big deal and it's like oh are you playing moxes like what people don't own those cards like it's just it's very good it's absolutely wild to me i it's hard it's hard to use as well so i don't think this is just a you can pick up this deck and you know ride urza to victory there's a big learning curve but i think this deck encourages and rewards big brain, galaxy brain, interstellar synapses plays. Yeah. The best way to think about this, for me anyway, is that Urza has three different distinct plans. It's a two-for-one that lets you kill something. It can be a combo engine, and it can draw cards all in one single card. And the crazy, there's two additional things that I think are kind of hit about it. One is you get all the, va- the value immediately when you play it. None of its abilities are tapped. None of its abilities mean that it has has to be in play for a turn before you can do anything with it. You can draw cards right away. You can tap for mana right away. You get a big creature right away. The other thing that's kind of weird, I think, is that it's kind of annoyingly resistant to removal, right? On the spoiler episode, I made a crack about why can't they make cards like this die to lightning bolt. Well, there's a lot of reasons that it's hard to do that. But this card doesn't die to lightning bolt. It's hard to kill with fatal push if you're not in, if you're not thinking about it ahead of time and and kind of keeping that heads up. It doesn't die to abrupt decay, you know, randomly. So there's all these kind of like niche things that it can survive from. Not to mention some of the cards in the decks that it in also enable that. So I I'm going to bookmark this point later to people to return to when I make an argument later in the show. I think because it still does die to removal, but you have this window where you can interact and do things is what makes this really silly to me. So you play it, ETBs, you get the golem, and then they go, okay, you know, I crack a fetch, I fatal push. In response, you go, okay, I tap these five lands right now and activate the ability. Or I tap these five lands, float five blue, he's dead. My priority again, I have five blue I'm going to spend. So I just think that there's no clean way to stop this card from at least getting one chance at doing something wild. Yeah. It's like other stuff, like obviously Counterspell. Counterspell's good. But outside of Counterspell, there's not a way to make sure that they don't get some window with Urza. Yeah, all for the low cost of two blue boo. But like with this deck, we're going to talk about in some eggs, zero cost artifacts and such coming forward, there is the mana ramp, and you can get him out as early as turn one or two if you're truly living the dream. Turn one is a pretty tall order. I've seen it happen, and I lost to it. That's why I brought it up. Wow. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute. So obviously, you know, the deck that Urza goes into wants you to have artifacts, right? And what are the cheapest artifacts? Zero cost, why? Exactly, the ones that cost zero. And so Zach likes to call these eggs in reference to kind of older versions of decks like this. I think it's true that this is kind of an eggs style deck ultimately when it comes down to it. But 
This deck is just jam-packed with zero or one casting cost artifacts that provide marginal advantage that you get to then leverage into a huge construct or a bunch of mock sapphires that you can then use to activate the third ability on Urza. And so I think it's worth us going through what these cards are and why they're so important. Just real quick, I call them eggs because the original eggs you played, cracked, made mana, and draw a card, drew a card off of. And here you're doing that Urza's making the mana because you're tapping them and you're drawing cards with, we'll talk about it in a second, Paradoxical Outcome. Yep. So it's, it reminds me of eggs in the sense that you're generating card advantage and mana advantage via these small cost artifacts. But this, you don't have to sacrifice them. You're just returning them to your hand often. Yep. So it's eggs, but eggs 2.0. Yeah, and even even the Urza deck that does not run Paradoxical Outcome runs these cards still to help power things like War of Invention and just the fact that these are really good with Urza. So let's start at the top. Let's start with a big broken one, and that is Mox Opal. So I'm going to read the card text of Mox Opal really quickly, which is zero. Legendary artifact, Metalcraft, which means you have to have three artifacts in play. Tap to add one mana of any color. Activate this ability only if you control three or more artifacts. That's what Metalcraft means. So one of the main sources of this power in this deck is that it gets to run moxes. In some scenarios, it gets to run eight moxes, but they all run four mox opals. Guys, what's so good about mox opal? Well, you see, sometimes free cards can actually be good. It's a free ramped out resource, Dave. Yeah. Usually you have to wait till turn two to get an extra mana, but now you can do it on turn one. Check it out. You get to play things earlier on curve, and that's about it. It does take some stuff to... Um, enable it. Metalcraft is not something that you get all the time. And so one of the things you have to think about all the time with this deck is, am I sacrificing my Mishra's Bauble and getting rid of Metalcraft by accident? Think, Am I sacrificing my Engineered Explosives? Should I play my Engineered Explosives on zero, even though it's not going to do anything to power out Metalcraft or, or not? So there's a lot of thinking around that. But other than that, this is just pretty much one of the most powerful cards in modern. And it shows. Yeah, this and Mox Amber are one of the reasons why I think Stony Silence and Collector Oof are still okay against some of the Urza decks. Uh, the power level of those two cards can vary depending on which strategy of Urza you're playing against, but these decks tend to be pretty landlight and can rely on Mox to play Magic in general. So if you can Stony Silence them, you might be able to buy yourself some time that way that they're trying to ramp into. And so really quickly, since Dan mentioned Mox Amber... That's the other mocks that you get to run in this deck. Actually, the card that everybody thought was so terrible out of Dominaria, which you know I think just needed its moment to, to kind of moment in the sun. Not every deck runs it. It's basically only the ones that have Emery in the in there as well run Mox Amber. But then you just get to run eight moxes, and that is some vintage level power stuff. If you can consistently get moxes going, play cards three drops on turn one for example is a hugely powerful play still and if you can make it happen this is the way to do it um it's also an additional way to get loops going where you get artifacts that you want in your graveyard with emery and things like that to generate a ton of mana and blah 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 blah. there's all the all these other things coming in next as a unexpected egg or maybe a rogue egg we have engineered explosives x mana for an artifact it has sunburst so it enters the battlefield with a charge counter on it for each color of mana spent to cast it. So even if you cast X equals four, if you only spent white, it's only going to play with one counter on it. But if you spent four different colors, four colors, so on and so forth. Activate ability, two of any color, and sacrifice it. Destroy each non-land permanent with a converted mana cost equal to the number of counters on engineer explosives. 
Super important to the deck, sometimes you can just play him for zero mana to activate Metalcraft from Mox Opal, or to draw cards that some cards will mention later, but sometimes they can also be played to blow up a problem permanent, like in Staring Bridge, like I keep mentioning, or some other cards that are preventing you from achieving your plan or living the Urza dream that you want to live. Overall, really versatile. Any card that can be played for zero for value or used to wipe the board of certain problematic things is a winner in my book. It enables Metalcraft. It enables Emery. It's a good cheap trigger. It gives you the chance to, to uh, wrath stuff. It's perfect for this deck. Absolutely. We also have Mishra's Bobble showing up as an egg, which is pretty stable for these kinds of decks, but I guess just adds the value when you can draw a card, either sacking it or returning it to your hand or tapping it from hand with Urza. Anyone unfamiliar? Zero mana artifact. Tap. Sacrifice Misha's Bobble. Look at the top card of target player's library. Then, you draw a card at the beginning of next turn's upkeep. So there's some weird timing stuff you can do with drawing a card and looking at cards in general. It's mostly just a way to have an extra artifact for Mox Opal and draw a card and make mana. Yeah. The thing that's most interesting to me about Misha's Bobble is that this card kind of sat on the shelf in Modern for a very, very long time before people started playing it in a bunch of in uh, originally the first time i heard people mentioning it it was in prowess decks which mm -hmm. is kind of like wasn't it chapin who first pioneered this deck that's the first one that i heard yeah where it was like chapin was pairing it with uh, you know a bunch of other stuff and swift spear and it was kind of like wow okay and then eventually it it made its way into death shadow builds and traverse yeah you know yeah it made its way into traverse first to enable delirium and then it became a staple in Grixis Death Shadow and tons of other, and so now it's just kind of good enough to run and it is super super important to this this deck like no no doubt as far as cards you want to have to enable early plays Mishra's Bobble is definitely one of the cards you want in your hand it's also one of the possible pieces in your infinite loop in the ascendancy version right with Bobble and some mocks that'll get you there yep there's a bunch of loops to talk about in that version and Bobble, Bobble is definitely key to having uh to being the most easy one to pull off up next we've got arkham's astrolabe a snow artifact when arkham's astrolabe enters the battlefield draw a card it also has one tap at one mana of any color and you can play this for a single mana of any color as long as it's produced by snow mana by snow permanent snow permanent is interesting because on magic online if you add mana from arkham's astrolabe you can cast another astrolabe with it so i had i had moments where i lost i didn't have my island available to me anymore and so i ended up having to do it this way instead and i still got to cast another astrolabe later in the game which was super interesting tap an opal to tap your astrolabe to cast another astrolabe yeah and once again, folks, these are the galaxy rain plays you are expected to make when you play this deck. Yeah. So those are the staples of what the of the eggs are. From there, there's kind of this group of additional artifacts or additional cheap artifacts that are sort of like that includes one real egg. Yeah, that are sort of flavor to taste, right? So the next group that I that 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 group is kind of like witching well. Everflowing Chalice, Chromatic Star, Pentad Prism. Those are kind of the main ones that we saw in different capacities in different decks. So Chromatic Star, people are familiar with because it's played in Tron, and that is one of the original eggs. You, you sacrifice it to make a, a colored mana, you get to draw a card. That's kind of what that card does. Pentad Prism is something that gets run in um, Ad Nauseam, so people are probably a little familiar with that. It's kind of like a ramp and colored mana enabler, but Everflowing Chalice, I think, is interesting because it doesn't show up that much. So Yes, Everflowing Chalice is a zero mana artifact that's got multi-kicker two, which is two generic mana, and you may pay an additional two mana of any color 
any number of times as you cast the spell. And then it enters the battlefield with a charge counter on it for each time it was kicked. And then you could tap to add colorless mana for each charge counter on Chalice. So while I usually cast this for zero, I did find it handy periodically and perhaps even important to kick this spell whenever I had a land light hand and was relying on mocks to produce mana. So perhaps I wouldn't cast this on turn one always if I thought on turn two I might be able to kick it. Absolutely. It reminds me of engineering explosives in that way, where sometimes you're just playing it to activate a metal craft or, you know, make some tokens off your enablers we're going to talk about shortly. Also worth noting that multi-kicker doesn't change the CMC of this spell, so Chalice on Zero still nabs it. That was a judge call in a game I had, and I could have seen it going either way, but multi-kicker does not change what's printed in the corner, even if it's on the stack. Interesting. Uh, the other card that I think is worth reading quickly here is Witching Well which is a single blue mana for an artifact. It's from Eldraine. And all it says is, when Witching Well enters the battlefield, scry two. And then has an activated ability that says, three generic mana, one blue, sacrifice Witching Well, draw two cards. Pretty cool little artifact serum vision, sort of. I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. Same. I would cite it out a lot. It was fine in game one, but I felt like it was probably one of the least impactful spells in my deck. So if I needed important sideboard pieces, this is one of the first things to come out. Same. That's kind of how I felt about it too. But cool new card. Mm -hmm. So now that we have the eggs, we've cracked these bad eggs. Yolks everywhere. Shell everywhere. Kitchen totally ruined. So let's talk about one of the first builds, right? Yeah. So the paradoxical Urza deck as it's known, is looking like the most popular version of the deck right now. And it's really funny because this deck has just sort of emerged over the last two or three weeks. And strangely enough, it's kind of based on a vintage deck, if you really think about it. So there is a paradoxical outcome deck in vintage. And uh, I think that this is sort of trying to port the power of that into modern. It kind of plays... It should be noted that that vintage deck is worth a cool $45,000, yeah. in case anybody was wondering about the market right now. Amazing. I Don't make me talk about how... I was looking at that price list last night, and I used to have most of that deck. <laughs> Whatever. And I Now I'm like... Whiskey in hand, lights dimmed, Beach Boys, volume level three. Yeah. I, I, I sold it to buy a sampling machine for my band. All right. Anyway. <laughs> how did that go? Yeah, where's the band out, doing? <laughs> I got a couple of good seven inches that I can play for you guys sometimes. Uh, that sounds real fun. It sounds enticing. All right, anyway. <laughs> so basically, the Paradoxical deck, like we said earlier, is a kind of like control token artifacts matter deck. It's sort of like a, you know, in Vintage, people use a lot of zero casting cost artifacts to trigger cards like Monastery Mentor to get kind of like, to play a control plan, put down your win condition, make an army, and then attack and win. And this is sort of porting that idea into Modern. So it comes with that. Plus in Modern, you get the extremely powerful Urza engine on top of that of making all the tokens. Maybe you make a big token. Maybe your tokens make mana, all these kind of different things. So this deck is all about converting the mana advantage that Urza brings into tokens and cards. But how it really creates that advantage in cards is through a fun card that I think everybody forgot about from Kaladesh called Paradoxical Outcome. Three and a blue for an instant. An instant. Why is it an instant? It's underlined in exclamation marks in our notes. Instant. Also on the card, it's bolded in a way that other text isn't. It's pretty interesting. Return any number of target non-land, non-token permanents you control to their owner's hand. Draw a card for each card returned to your hand this way. 
So this card's amazing. One of the most important top decks in the deck, in the strategy, and in, in both of the Urza outcome strategies we're going to talk about. Pretty vital combo piece in general, and answering this card is about as effective as answering something like Past and Flames out of Storm, where it can really hamper that deck's entire plan to just basically go off from there. To reiterate, this is why I called this deck the second coming of eggs. This is how you're drawing the cards. So you're playing all these zero and one cost artifacts and you know either accruing value via the enter the battlefield trigger of Astrolabe or just creating mana via the opal and amber. Then you play this card, pick up your low cost cards returned to your hand, draw cards from it, and then you can replay them from your hand. So we don't get into this right now, but there's a card called Second Sunrise, which led to a lot of cracking eggs and getting them back. And this is just playing them, getting them back. It just, it's it's wild to me how good this card is. Like, it's it's a truly astounding. One of the crazy interactions in this deck is with Urza on the field, you can tap all of those artifacts for mana before you bounce them back. So you are generating, like, practically infinite mana over the course of a game or as much mana as you need to more or less win on the spot or the next turn. Yeah. And as good as all that is, I'd like to just quickly point out that there is some stuff that people forget about with this card, I I think, which is that I believe that people kind of get a little bit of blinders on as far as thinking that this is really only going to pick up your eggs. You know what I mean? And the truth is, this card is actually extremely powerful to have in your deck to do a couple of other things. So like uh, Zach and Stan said, it lets you recycle your enter the battlefield triggers. So if you wanted to make a bunch of tokens off of Sahili, pick it up and then drop these again, you get that. The other thing that this does is that it gets it lets you reset engineered explosives if you played it early with no counters. So you pick up your engineered explosives, drop it back down, sweep the other person's board for whatever you're trying to do, and kind of move on from there. You can reset planeswalkers if you like, if you if you're getting their loyalty down or something like that. The craziest one that I that I've done a number of times is wait until my opponent tries to kill Urza and then play Paradoxical Outcome in response to the removal spell on Urza, pick Urza back up and replay it at the same time that I drop all of the all of the eggs, and, you know, make all the mana and drop all the eggs, I just replay Urza. So you can even use Paradoxical Outcome as a little bit of a protection spell, which is kind of mind-blowing in a deck that a 4CMC spell is not much of a hurdle for. I think even if you're not using it to protect Urza, it's generally a good idea to pick up Urza with Outcome if Urza's on the battlefield, because mm -hmm. making an extra construct is such a big game in the strategy. Yeah. So very versatile card, really powerful. I think it's been sort of waiting for a chance to have a home in modern in some ways, because it's clearly powerful. It's definitely draft chaff in, you know, in that actual set and in that standard as well. But um, pretty powerful effect to draw a whole bunch of cards for four mana. But why is playing all these zero cost and one cost artifacts good? What's the payoff? You're drawing cards, but what are those... What are you doing with those cards? What are you playing? And I think there's really two parts of this deck that are making it exceptional. And the first one of those is Psy, Master Thopterist, which is two and a blue for a 1-4 creature, which has this important text. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, you create a 1-1 colorless Thopter artifact creature token with flying. When you're playing the zero cost or one class spells, you're triggering Psy and making a Thopter. There's also this wildly important text, one in a blue, sacrifice two artifacts, draw a card. So with Urza out, you can tap the two artifacts you're going to sacrifice for mana and sacrifice them to draw a card. So this is just a really powerful engine that's giving you flyers off the cards you're already playing and allowing you to do things like play three cards, draw six cards, make four thopters, your turn, 
And then on their end step, you sacrifice some stuff, draw some cards. It just, it's very, very good. Yeah, the draw ability pairs very nicely with Urza. It lets you block profitably with some extra tokens. Then you can just then cash them in and turn them into cards off of Psy. Cycle cards with Emery on the board. I honestly think Psy is basically one of the strongest creatures in modern when he's in the right deck. Right. Doesn't die to bolt, needs revolt to get hit by fatal push. Kind of looks like baby Urza to me. It's really funny that you were thinking one of the most powerful creatures in modern. And at the same time, I was literally thinking one of the most problematic creatures in modern, because when he's in a, in a deck that's he's really good, I think it's almost like an indication that that deck is extremely good. I think of your description of bridge from below when it comes to this and that that card's not enabling anything good or anything fair. Like, this card is, hey, it's three mana for a 1-4. That doesn't even do that much. Like, sure. But, like, in the right shell, it's like, okay, you have 17 Thopters now, and it's not going to be my turn for other five minutes, you say? Okay. So there is a redundant uh, kind of way to make tokens in this deck, and that's Saheeli Sublime Artificer, which is the Saheeli from War the, War the Spark. Um, and what she says is one hybrid blue-red, hybrid blue-red, five loyalty planeswalker whenever you cast a non-creature spell create a one one colorless servo artifact creature token servos don't fly david it's unfortunate that servos don't fly but it's very nice to have an alternate win con in the deck that does not let your opponent just kill you with plague engineer and so i think that's the main reason that this card is in there it's also you know resilient to different types of removal that's than psi is and so there's a little bit just kind of hedging your bet i think with with this the other thing is you know saheeli's minus two ability target artifact you control becomes copy of another target artifact or creature you control until end of turn except it's an artifact in addition to its other types does come up as useful occasionally occasionally you can turn a a servo into a construct, for example, and that'll get much bigger. Not just a servo, any artifact. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Any artifact. Mishra's Bobble. Heck no. You're a construct. You're a 1414. You're a virile young golem. You're a virile young bobble. Go out there and bob. <laughs> the other thing that I even did occasionally was like make an extra copy of Emery so that I could double activate Emery in a turn or play Emery and then make a copy of Emery that has haste so that I can use use Emery's ability with haste and things like that. So there are these kind of like marginal side things that you can do that that just um, come up. And so it's not the most powerful minus in the world, but it does come up occasionally. Speaking of Emery, I think it's time to talk about the other piece that recently got added to the stack that's super important. The fish herself. Lurker of the lock. Two in a blue for a one, two. Hey, dice to bolt. Yep. Box checked. Except, what's this? It has affinity for artifacts? Hmm. It costs one generic mana less for each artifact you control? That seems good. And when Emery enters the battlefield, put the top four cards of your library into your graveyard. Well, at least there's some drawback to this card. There's one more very important line of text. Basically the reason why Emery is in any of these decks. Because you can tap her, choose target artifact card in your graveyard. You may cast that card this turn. You still pay its costs. Timing rules still apply. <laughs> so people love killing Emery. One thing I've noticed, um, if the graveyard is empty, I don't think I'd recommend wasting a lightning bolt on her. Maybe if it shuts off Mox Amber, but even then, I don't know if she's always worth wasting a card. I, I think she is because Mox Amber is very good, and this deck only has a few targets that allow Mox Amber to be very good. 
And her coming down early is absolutely going to allow a very good turn afterwards. Even if it's just man acceleration, that's Urza turn earlier, which is a very real thing. I personally learned to remove her on site and felt like I was rewarded for doing so. But I'd love to hear Dave's thoughts on this. I mean, I think in this version of the deck, which is the one without Jeskai Ascendancy, we'll come back to Amri a little bit later in that deck as well. In this version of the deck, uh, great value engine. I think, like you said, you get that selection of being able to bring back something that lets you draw a card in Mishra's Bobble or bring back a, a a second Mox Opal that you can use for a second or something like that to to ramp. So it's got a lot of options. I, I agree it's probably kill on site, mostly because there aren't that many um targets for removal in this deck especially removal that kills emery but um i feel like it's just kind of like a great value card in this version of the deck i will say the number of times that i got this into play on turn one playing this deck is silly yes yes it's like every time you have emery in an opening draw you pretty much get to play it on turn one or totally turn, turn two at least so it's, it's pretty wild in that aspect good card annoying card clearly uh important to this deck there's another curve that's usually run as a one of as sort of a way to keep the combo going infinite and that's nexus of fate nexus of fate five blue blue for an instant take an extra turn for this one if nexus of fate would be put into a graveyard from anywhere reveal nexus of fate and shuffle into its owner's library instead so basically when you're drawing all these cards with paradoxical outcome you can you know draw a lot of cards and almost deck yourself but don't worry because then it can be your turn forever with nexus of fate feels very good in this deck i really liked it i felt like it was sort of this goofy glue that held my weird deck together but i see how an early draw it could be a little clunky yeah i never i never actually got to play this and i cited it out all the time so i think it was nice to have as an option but i i don't know if i would run it if it was if i was going to run this deck back out again i just i just didn't get to use it i never got to do the thing either i don't think it exists in the ascendancy version which is the deck i spent a little bit more time with no, I, I had it in my list on the Ascendancy version too, but it was just a one to, one of, but... Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a one of in the PO deck as well. Yeah. It just felt like it's kind of a nice escape hatch to have, and if you get into it later, then you got into it later, and you get to go infinite, you know? Do you think this might just be a way to beat Mill if you're paired against Mill in game one? I mean, it has that fun effect. I, I don't think it's for that, but... I think that's what it's for. I think Mill players prepare to get wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. All right, and so there's another, there's a whole other suite of enablers that we saw here, and most of them are Planeswalkers. So I don't think we're going to read the text of the Planeswalkers, but the first one that was on on this list is Teferi Time Raveler, our favorite card that seems to turn up all the time. Zach, it sounds like you played it. Yeah, I liked it. I had them sideboard, the move in the main board. His ability to prevent the opponent from casting instants or really anything that's not during their main phase and the stack is clear is pretty good. I just found there were a couple of times where I wanted to not worry about my opponent having a remand here or there and like messing me up. And I really, really enjoyed him. His power is clearly time-tested, clearly well-known, and I think he fits right into this deck. So I've cast a lot of Teferi Time Reveler in my day. I will wager that I may have cast more Time Revelers than anyone else on the pod, possibly. I'll believe that. I'm pretty sure of that, actually. So I love this card. And I was pretty happy with it in the sideboard, actually. In fact, I could see the argument that its slot should just be Oko instead. In general, I find that its static ability is its strongest function in this deck, since it can be so vulnerable to counter magic, but, you know, the Urza decks in general. Um, I never got to the point where I wanted it main, um, even though, like, I, I'm on board for 
Teferi as like a crazy powerful three mana walker. I just didn't, I didn't buy the Kool Aid that this is the best home for him. No, totally. And I think that something that we're going to talk about because there's three versions of the deck that you can sort of have Urza the way you want Urza, and you can build it the way you want. And if you want an infinite combo, that is quick and fun to activate. If you want to play eggs because you're that sort of person, you can. Whatever you want to do, Urza's there for you. <laughs> the next Planeswalker, another Stan favorite, Jace the Mind Sculptor. You know what he does. We're not going to read it. Valuable and versatile. Can help in some control matchups. Likewise, I don't think Jace is pivotal to the Urza strategy. Just another value engine that you can use if uh, you need to dig a little faster or just have some optionality in certain matchups. Yeah. In 2009, we called him Jace the Wallet Sculptor. Whoa, more expensive now than ever before, too. I know. I was in high school, so. God, you were in high school in 2009. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) Don't worry, Dave. I was in college. Oh, great. (laughs) A young buck hitting the scene. (laughs) So the last couple of Planeswalkers that I played in the deck that I did, which I mostly played the Ascendancy version, but I had Oko and Narset in the side of my Narset Parter Veils. And these were both really good, I thought. I spent a lot of time siding out Witching Well and Nexus of Fate and bringing in Oko basically in every match because Oko is just really good gain some life, get rid of some some problematic permanents, turn them into elks that nobody cares about, like occasionally exchange control of a permanent, all very good. And then Narset's always nice to have around to be able to keep people from drawing too many cards against you. So I, I really feel like it's a good uh, good package there. So that's the makeup of the first Urza deck we're talking about with Paradoxical Urza. So to recap real quick, this is a quote-unquote eggs deck in that you're playing a lot of cheap artifacts, zero or one cost, using them to create mana and draw cards. And then with this deck, you are also triggering Psy, Master Thopterist, and Sahili to create Servos and Thopters. So you're playing all of these cheap artifacts to make a bunch of tokens, and you also have this construct. So either you're getting in by swinging, you know, with 21-1 flyers or 21-1 flyers and a 22-22 token, something like that. So the deck can be a little dirtly. It can take a little bit of time because you're just picking up cards and playing them over and over again. So great recap of how the deck works, Zach. Um, you and Stan played it a little bit more than I did. I played one of the other versions quite a bit more. Wh- what do you think about playing this version of the deck? Absolutely the most challenging deck I've played on Magic Online so far. The amount of clicking you have to do is truly absurd. I was told a shortcut on uh, literally yesterday on Sunday, where if you hold W or some sort of key, you can hold priority with Urza, so you can click multiple artifacts with his ability. But in general, there's just a lot of clicking to be done. You click Urza, click Artifacts, you click Artifacts, then click Urza to 5, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm sure there are shortcuts hidden deep within the code slash Grimoire within the that Matrix. is Magic Online. Yeah, the, slash The Matrix that is Magic Online. But the deck, I just didn't have fun with it, and I feel like I, I don't particularly enjoy these types of strategies. It's clearly very good. But even in paper, in real life, you can have games that go 20, 30 minutes for a game just because you can be drawing all these cards and not have an immediate way to win. Like we mentioned earlier up top, Mirrored and Besieged is a card that is played sometimes. And, you know, you can eventually get there and have, you know, have your Thopters unable to attack or whatever, but win via a card that says you do win the game or an opponent loses the game even. But overall, I found the deck to be very, very skill challenging in a way I did not find rewarding. But if people are very into brain teasers, very into lots of moving pieces and lots of decision trees, this is a deck I would highly recommend to you. Very powerful, very good, not for the faint of heart. 
Yeah, I basically felt similar to Zach. It, in my experience, it reminded me of playing Storm um, for for good and for bad reasons. And frankly, I didn't like it at first, though I did warm up to it a little bit after getting more comfortable with the play pattern and just figuring out my role in matchups, figuring out how all the tools worked in tandem with one another. But the biggest issue that I had playing it and even just like thinking about it conceptually as a deck is that it's so full of air. And I found that it can sometimes be hard to be resilient against disruptive strategies um, while also sometimes I'll just lose if I couldn't find a payoff. So on the one hand, it's not a fast deck in general. And I think the version without Ascendancy is probably even slower than Storm, for instance. But on that note, the Storm comparison, I think, is like right there where you have, instead of Baral and Electromancer, you'd play Cyrus Ahili. And instead of Cantrips or Rituals, you'd play all these eggs. Instead of Pass and Flames, you'd play Paradoxical Outcome. So as a result, I'd have these three important combo categories. And sometimes two of them would be okay, such as like eggs and a payoff. But sometimes I would find myself in these awkward situations where I had all the wrong cards and sort of felt hopeless while my opponent ran me over. So you say you're looking for more payoffs. <laughs> so you say you want a combo. Well, whoop to do. So with that in mind, I think that that's how we can kind of get to deck 1A, I guess we could say, or the second deck that we're going to look at today, which is the version of Paradoxical Urza that adds Jeskai Ascendancy. So it's not really different from the Paradoxical Outcome version. I think part of the only reason we're talking about them separately right now is because it does seem like people are still finding value in running both of the decks. If you look at that SCG Day 2 meta, there were eight people who were playing the non-Ascendancy version. There were 12 people who were playing the Ascendancy version. So there are some people still kind of working it out. But I do think that what this does is add another dimension of payoff to the paradoxical outcome deck in the same way that we when we talked about in the breakdown mirrored and besieged also adds that to it so it's kind of like finding ways to add more win cons to the deck so that you're not playing quite so much air although you know the win cons are kind of clunky on their on their own as well but basically in case you're not familiar with the card jeskai ascendancy here's what it does jeskai ascendancy costs white red blue it's an enchantment it's a part of a cycle from Consitar Cure. And what it says is, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, creatures you control get plus one, plus one until end of turn. Untap those creatures. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you may draw a card. If you do, discard a card. So here's what it does. It adds another layer, another card that triggers off of when you cast eggs. Or potentially, when you tap your creatures to do stuff, another way to untap your creatures to add more mana to the mana pool in that first ability. So it kind of adds another source of triggers for what you are going to be doing anyway. They're just non-token triggers. It sounds really kind of fidgety, I think. And people may remember from Consitark here standard that there was a deck, a very, very good deck that was based all around Jeskai Ascendancy. It was, it was a tokens deck. It was actually kind of similar, not in execution to this um, outcome deck, but you ended up with similar board states where you would have a whole bunch of goblins and monk tokens, and then you could start doing things like going off, tapping them and untapping them and making a, an army that pumped up, and then you attack. 
Um, so this helps with that. But the thing that's really wild that Jeskai Ascendancy does, kind of like the level one thing it does, is that it opens up a combo kill with Emery specifically. So we talked on the spoiler episode that Emery does some wild stuff with Jeskai Ascendancy, Mishra's Bobble, and a Mox. So you can kill someone as early as turn two with a giant Emery by playing Emery on turn one, getting uh, a card like Mishra's Bobble into the graveyard by sacrificing it, and then tapping Emery to replay it. As long as you have Jeskai Ascendancy in play, the Bobble comes back into play, Emery untaps, and you can do that over and over again to make a giant Emery that, that attacks on turn two. I know that this sounds impossible. Yes, it does. But it's not that hard to do. What? Yeah, so you basically need two mocks, I think is the bare minimum, a mox opal and a mox amber. Sometimes two mox opal will do it because that's, I think, key to getting the turn to ascendancy out. So it's actually not even that difficult because you can play... So what you need is a blue mana source on turn one so that you can play Emery, right? So there's lots of ways to do that. You can essentially do it just with bauble a mox, a blue mana source land, and, and another land, and an ascendancy. Because you get to play a land on turn two. So you can play a land, play Jeskai Ascendancy a turn early, sacrifice the bauble, tap tap Emery to bring the bauble back, tap the bauble, blah, 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 over and over again. So you really don't need two moxes. You just need one. You just need one way to get acceleration there. You do have to have two zero casting cost artifacts in your opening hand so that you can play Emery on the on the first turn. And that and that's what's key. And this is the version where Mox Amber becomes super, super good, right? Because um, it's another redundant way to make sure that you get that acceleration off of a mox. Um, the other thing I would say is that uh, that's the kind of the base level version of it, but there are a bunch of other loops that you can have happen. You can kill someone if you happen to have a pair of Mox Ambers or a pair of Mox Opals in, in your opening hand, because what you do is you play the Mox, you play a second zero casting cost artifact like Engineered Explosives or something like that, and then on your second turn, you can tap your Mox that's in play for mana, play the second Mox, send the the first mox to the graveyard with the legend rule and then go back and forth having emery untapped to be able to switch moxes over and over again so you can use the legendary rule to make sure that you get an artifact into the graveyard that emery can recycle you can also go off like this with a single mox amber a single mox opal and an engineered explosives because you can tap the moxes over and over again to blow up the engineered explosives to blow up your moxes and then Emery can kind of untap over and over again to bring those cards back into play in kind of a three-card cycle. So the thing is, when you really start to look at how to make these loops in with Emery and Jeskai Ascendancy, there's three or four different ways to do it that all are very like marginally hard to have happen. But when you start to add them together, the probabilities go up and make it happen more often. I really only played around 10 matches with this deck and I got turn turn two kills at least two, two or three times with this deck. I played Emery on turn one, I think six times in 10 matches and that is pretty good. And maybe even on the low side. Totally agree. I, I found it remarkably easy to get Emery out on turn one. Yeah. And like you said, Emery eats removal a lot of times, but people have to kill it because it's just this whole thing where like, it doesn't even matter what's in your graveyard stand. Like you were saying in the version with Jeskai Ascendancy, if they don't kill it, then you can often just go off right away. Now, maybe they, you can, 
they can wait until you start to go off so that you play the ascendancy and then it's out and then you do that thinking that they kind of like shut you down from value sure you can do that too and i think that's the key right when when i said earlier that people love killing emery and you might want to hold your removal if the graveyard's empty i think one of the nice things about this deck compared to something like kci for instance where you get priority you get the chance to interact sometimes so i think people probably need to be a little bit more conservative with emery until they get the window to kill her when it's absolutely necessary but like something like an abrade for instance I would be conservative holding an abrade for a construct rather than cashing it in on an emery as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with you. I The only thing I would say is I think if you have sorcerer speed removal that you have to play it like you, you can't you can't wait till you have another turn later or you have some sort of feedback at some point. If you have the ability to hold open a bolt or whatever it be and you can wait till you can go, ah, gotcha, like you committed to a combo you can't finish. But overall, like I had an anger of the gods that I had to play on turn two because I didn't have an option because if they untap, they go off. So if you can do like, you know, this is a little further down, but maybe you have a wrath of God of damnation. Don't hold that, play it. And even just playing that to get rid of a single emery is worth it. As long as you can do that. Yeah, totally agree. So it's another powerful dimension to this deck that comes with little cost in in my mind especially in a deck that runs for arkham's astrolabes anyway to be able to get you know fix your mana that's a whole aspect of it where you can play an astrolabe to enable a turn one emery and da 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 there's kind of all these things you can have happen there as well the other thing that i would say is that i think that people when they read this maybe just see the infinite combo as an aspect of why you would play jeskai ascendancy and i also think that's a little incorrect because Ascendancy does provide some value later in the game to be able to help the deck close a little bit faster and also potentially find answers that it's looking for a little bit uh, more quickly just from the, the abilities that it actually has. So, you know, the first line of text where you get to give your creatures plus one, plus one until end of turn, you know, if you go have five or six Thopters out and you go Paradoxical Outcome all those all those thopters get plus one plus one and then you drop your hand of eggs all of a sudden they're all five fives or six sixes and you could swing in maybe many turns before you would have been able to do it if you were just playing without ascendancy ascendancy also stacks so if you're trying to make a whole bunch of mana and you have two ascendancies in play you can untap your creatures a bunch of times and make a huge amount amount of mana with urza and go off that way the looting ability that it has can also help you after a paradoxical outcome dig to a card that you're looking for if you really need an engineered explosives or you happen to be looking for your nexus of fates or you want to get another um urza or something like that there's there's lots of other options that you can do there and i think that this card is mostly on plan for what the stack wants to do so i approach you as a modern player with all these cards in front of me and i say i love urza i love paradox outcome i love playing eggs putting them down picking them up cracking them throwing them away why should I play this deck over the traditional outcome or why should I play outcome over this deck? I think it's a great question. I think Stan spent the most time playing both. So I'd kind of love for you to start with your reaction to that question. So I got to say, I actually had to come around to Just Guy Ascendancy because at first I found the deck so challenging that I actually thought it was bad. And then it wasn't until I started talking to you, Dave, and reading basically the experiences y'all wrote down with these decks that I went back to revisit it and try to play it again. One with one of the versions from 
SCG India. I think I used Oliver Tomiko's list. Mm -hmm. But I think what it comes down to to answer Zach's question is that Ascendancy has the highest ceiling. It gives you the opportunity for a turn two kill while also giving you the chance to spin your wheels a little bit more profitably. Wherein sometimes if you're, say, activating Urza over and over, you might fizzle out because you hit a land and you can't play another land. You run out of artifacts to tap and mana to produce, etc. But with Ascendancy and even in the face of certain hate pieces, you can still make a big Emery or make a big token or make a big anything and and swing for lethal. Um, and that's something that I think the outcome version without Ascendancy just doesn't have access to and an access that the War of Invention deck doesn't play on at all. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's interesting with this for me, and like I said, I, I didn't play the the deck without Ascendancy, is that you don't really trade that much to have this card in your deck instead. From what I can tell, it looks like you run a few less wishing wells or witching wells. You run a few less enablers. You just witching well. Yeah. What a weird card name still. Um you and then you jam four ascendancy in your deck and you're basically still running the same deck. You know, you're just also incentivized to run four mox ambers instead of maybe three. And I, I kind of think that this is probably going to turn out to be the right way to do this deck ultimately when it comes down to it. And maybe it becomes one of those things where sometimes you aggressively side it out if you don't really want to play the ascendancy version or the ascendancy game in game two and you want to play something that's a little more controlling. Um, I think ascendancy is just really powerful and has been looking for a real home in modern for a long time. And this just feels like this is a legit home for it. So that is the one asterisk deck we talked about at the beginning. So there's paradoxical and then there's paradoxical ascendancy, but ascendancy we all sort of agreed is maybe a more powerful deck overall and has the ability to just become normal paradoxical outcome if you want to in game two. But there's also another deck, a deck whose name is well-known in these halls, well-respected, and that is the classic Wurza, also known as Four-Color Wurza. So th this is a deck that I'm personally very fond of. It's very prison-y in nature in that there are a lot of ways to lock your opponent out and prevent them from doing what they want to do, in that you're not just trying to do your thing, go, you're interacting and stopping your opponent along the way. So there's this combo that exists that I mentioned, and we'll go over it right now, and it involves Thopter Foundry and Sword of the Meek. And Urza as well, because of course it does. So Thopter Foundry, for anyone who's unfamiliar, two mana. One of those mana is a white-black hybrid, so either white or black, and a blue mana. One mana of any color, sacrifice a non-token artifact, create a 1-1 blue Thopter artifact creature token with flying, and you gain a life. Sword of the Meek, two mana artifact, it's an equipment. The creature gets plus one, plus two, equipped two, not really relevant to the point of the card. But what is relevant is whenever a 1-1 creature enters a battlefield under your control, you may return Sword of the Meek from the graveyard to the battlefield, then attach it to that creature. So this is where Urza's bonkers mana ability comes into play. And that ability, once again, is tap an untapped artifact you control, add a blue. And because the sword returns from the graveyard upon Thopter Foundry's activation, it's very easy to get it into play from the yard. And you can always cast it too. So th that's the two ways this combo is going to start. Either it's in play already or is being something's being sacrificed for it to come into play. So with Urza, Sword of the Meek, and Thopter Foundry all in the battlefield, you tap a sword for a blue mana, and then you sacrifice it to Thopter Foundry's ability. So the sword goes to the graveyard as part of the cost to pay. And then a Thopter comes into play, which returns the sword to the battlefield untapped. 
which you then tap again for a blue mana and sacrifice, and then make another Thopter. And you can just keep doing that as long as they can't interrupt you. And you gain a life every time. So when this works, you have infinite Thopters and infinite life. So you do something like in paper go, I'll make 2 million Thopters gain 2 million life. It's your turn now. And most decks don't have a way to win from that. So one anecdote I want to illustrate right now is that for this deck, one way to beat it is to get both Stony Silence and Rest in Peace on the board. Very hard for this deck to win once those two cards are on the battlefield. Someone played those two cards against me while I was playing the Ascendancy version with an Emery, and I still won because I didn't have to use the graveyard. And I think that's one of the things I kind of wanted to illustrate, didn't do it specifically, is how Ascendancy creates these really resilient conditions that War of Invention doesn't always have. But I digress. Well, I was just going to say, the difference here does come down to the combo, but the other big part is the enablers are different, right? So there's there's Goblin Engineers in this deck, which is a great way to get sort of the meek into your graveyard so that you can later bring up Thopter Foundry or something like that. Um, the other thing is that it has were. Right. Right. And Goblin Engineer, anyone unfamiliar real quick, one in a red for a one-two. When Goblin Engineer enters the battlefield, you may search your library for an artifact card of any kind, put it in your graveyard, shuffle your library. Then it has red, tap it, Sacrifice an artifact, return target artifact card with converted mana cost three or less, graveyard to play. So what you can do is grab a Thopter Foundry and then play a sword, sacrifice sword to get the Foundry back, and you have a combo going. Mm. So it just really greases the wheels here and sometimes can chump block when it needs to, which is a very key part of this deck in making sure you get to your combo. Also, the namesake of the deck, War of Invention, is a big card. X, U, 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 with Improvise. Your artifacts can help cast this spell, and each artifact you tap after you're done activating mana abilities pays for one of the X in the mana cost. Search your library for an artifact card with CMC cost X or less. Put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library, and it is an instant. Right. So as we see, this deck has two really consistent ways to get the pieces to the combo that it needs. So you're cutting out on some of the eggs or cutting out in some of the paradoxal outcome to have more consistent ways to get to your infinite life combo. Right. And really, the thing I love about this deck is that you can find so many of the pieces using Wur or Goblin Engineer. And unlike Outcome or Ascendancy, where you have to draw into stuff, at least Wurza lets you grease those wheels with a lot of redundant tutor effects. And I also think that the life gain along with the resilient combo engine, gives you the opportunity to claw out of some games if you play your cards well. So maybe this is a personal bias, but I appreciate all the opportunities to make decisions in this deck, as opposed to feeling more all-in on a Storm-esque plan that either does its thing or fizzles out. The Thopter Sword combo never fizzles. It is worth noting that a Pithing Needle can shut this deck down pretty good. A Pithing Needle naming Thopter Foundry stops you from doing the combo. As Stan mentioned, Stony Silence, very good. They really have to go off in response to you playing Stony Silence, or the combo becomes very difficult to execute after that. So what makes this Urza deck different than the other two, in a way, in that it's sort of almost a toolbox deck. Like we mentioned, they can run Karn, but also Wur and Goblin Engineer search up cards that you need. So whether it's getting that combo into play, or searching up a Pithing Needle, or any other sort of 
artifact hate cards you want to include, this deck has more versatility and more interaction than the other Urza decks do. This Urza deck isn't saying, you go away, I'm doing my thing. It's, hey, you're doing your thing, but I'm doing my thing, but part of my thing is stopping your thing. Yeah, part of the unfortunate side effect is that is that this deck can kind of grind the whole game down to nothing. It can just sort of not have anything to do but stop their opponent from doing anything, and so you can get a real kind of like time battle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, because the thing is, if you're grabbing hate or disruption with your tutors, you're not grabbing your combo pieces, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a problem I ran into with the Grumgully Goblins as well, where if I need to grab a munitions expert, I'm not grabbing a payoff card. So I'm stopping you, but then I'm still sitting here going, oh, um, I swing for three and it's your turn. Like, oh, that's not very impressive at all. So we have three Urza decks, unique, beloved, different, respected. But I think more or less, there's a certain kind of strategy you can go in that's good against this wide variety of decks and sort of a way to play against it or sort of certain separate strategies to keep in mind when playing against them. Right. So let's talk about how to beat these decks, because I think the majority of our listeners aren't casting Urza's of their own. And as Zach mentioned, there's a lot of tools to do that. And some tools work for certain strategies better than others. So we'll start with the outcome strategies first. Phyrexian Revoker. Pithing Needle, Style Effects, Sorcerer Spyglass, very strong. Naming Emery is one way to stop them. Naming Urza is another way to stop them. Doesn't stop the mana ability, though. Revoker does. Can you explain why Revoker does and Pithing Needle doesn't? Yes, because Revoker does not specify that it does not include mana abilities, while the other ones do specify that they include mana abilities. And the whole thing is Urza is he taps an artifact to make a blue mana, artifacts don't mm -hmm. tap for mana right. and like it's easy to shortcut in paper like my opponent taps as artifacts i'm not going what are you doing explain to me i get oh they have urza out they're tapping them for blue mana via urza but it actually matters you know for those rules interactions that urza is tapping the artifacts once again apparently there's a shortcut that we all learned after we played yeah right. my jaw's on the ground i wish i knew that while i was playing these decks one of the other hate cards that i found very effective against me was thalia guardian of thraben the taxing effect was super punishing, basically making it very challenging, if not impossible, for me to storm off with my eggs because it makes all my eggs cost one rather than zero, which is what I want them to cost. There's also Eidolon of the Revel. The Great Revel, not just the Revel. That's right, and it's really great at stopping this deck as well, or at least doing a ton of damage while you're casting all of your zero mana spells. Each of those zero mana spells basically comes out to a shock. Absolutely. There's a debate about whether or not this card is main deckable in certain non-burn strategies, and I think that as long as there are decks that are playing zero mana cards repeatedly, this is a very good card to play. Yeah, I mean, you basically can't cast Outcome at that point because you'll just lose. Right. The deck, it, Eidolon really slows the game down in an interesting way. Collector Oof and Stony Silence effects, basically a bunch of Stone Rains if your opponent has mocks and are relying on mocks to produce most of their mana. Likewise, it'll shut down the Mishra's bobble effects. It'll shut down the ability to crack your engineered explosives. I believe it'll even shut down the Witching Well. Witching Well! Yeah, you can't you can't draw a card with it, but Narset Parter Veils is really good as well because, you know, if you're trying to draw a bunch of cards, she can stop you from doing that. Um, there's also 
surgical extraction and other uh, and discard effects. I know that those are similar things. Surgical extraction was actually super effective against me in, in one game where they just took Emery and Urza out of my graveyard and kind of went on their their merry way. It was very hard for me to do anything after that point. And discard similar, right? If I lose my payoff card in my opening hand, then we just kind of move on from there. As we mentioned earlier, Emery is a card to be aware of and to either kill if you can't interact at instant speed or to try to be mindful of when you can disrupt them best at instant speed. So knowing when to stop Emery from providing the most value is very important for taking apart the first two kinds of decks, a Paradoxical Outcome and Paradoxical Jeskai that we mentioned. Yeah, and also almost in the same family as Hand Disruption, I think Counterspells are pretty good. Since the eggs by themselves don't do much without either and either of the enablers, so with the exception of engineered explosives, you can often let bobbles and mocks resolve and then save your counter magic for Psy, Sahili, Urza, or Paradoxical Outcome. And sometimes get really paid off for basically stopping them in their tracks at that point. The Eldraine card Mystical Dispute was very powerful for me. In the mirror match, I used it to counter another Urza and felt like I was the best magic player ever. And that was a one-time moment, and I no longer feel that way, but it's worth noting. I mean, I think that card is going to be around sideboards as long as Urza is out there. It is an extremely effective answer to the threats in this deck. So that's how you fight the deck. That's how you tussle with it, wrestle with it. So, you know, we kind of talked about how we feel about Urza, but overall, how do you feel about these decks? Are we all believers? Are we sleevers? Are we secret evers? I mean, this is clearly an established and super powerful deck. I'm going to not rush back to play it after this just because it was excruciatingly challenging to play on Magic Online because of all the clicking, the targeting, especially trying to go off with Emery on turn two. So I timed myself one time when I comboed off because my opponent disconnected, but it just let me keep playing. I took 10 minutes to count Emery all the way up from one power to 20 power by going through all the triggers from Jeskai Ascendancy, the card draw, the discard, targeting the Mishra's Bobble, bringing it back, like all of those things. Um, yeah, it took me 10 minutes of clock time on my side to, to combo off and win. So if you think about it in the context of why decks sometimes get banned, unfortunately, you know, if people are taking 10 or 12 minute turns in real life, there's just no way. There's no way this is going to stay. I, I, I hate to say it. Um, yeah, I personally don't think that the deck has a power level issue. I think Urza is very good, and I said that. But I don't think it's frustrating enough to be quote-unquote bad-worthy. I think the fact that sometimes you can dirtle, but it's not slow play, right? The game's progressing. You're doing things. You're triggering abilities. You're drawing cards. So it's not even if someone plays at a reasonable clip, they can have turns that last upwards of 10 minutes. They can have games that last upwards of 25, 30 minutes in paper and, like, it can just be a lot. So I I worry about the future of this deck. Maybe things will change. Maybe people get quicker. Maybe they find faster ways to close the loops. But I I think that the current iteration as we see it is not long for the world unless something changes. Yeah, I think it's an interesting conclusion we're all sort of all dancing around, which is the deck didn't feel overpowered in a problematic way. And, you know, it, it wasn't KCI because KCI basically cheated on the rules of magic in a way that your opponent couldn't do mm -hmm. anything. At least here, you can still do stuff. You pass priority at certain right. points. And, and really what we're talking about is this deck, if 
it gets banned and, and you know it, it might anything is possible it's because of these play patterns that it creates that um, zach pointed out to me earlier the reason eggs got banned once upon a time was because of how long it took that deck to play and basically the example that they put into the bnr announcement was like even if a game went to time it would still take like 40 or 50 minutes for it to resolve just because these combos take forever to resolve for anyone unfamiliar when a game goes to time at any sort of rel there's five extra turns so the current turn ends when the timer ends then one turn next player's turn turn two so on and so forth but these aren't timed so like stan's saying the game goes to time, and then the X player's turn ends, other player goes, X player tries to go off again, that can take, like we mentioned, 10-15 minutes. And this is a little different, that's not going to happen as often as eggs, but I think the fact that it can happen is really what's just, like, it's not good It's not good for coverage, it's not good for magic, it's not good for anyone's fun. And, like, I had a game go to time, and, like, I guess, quote-unquote, luckily, the game ended in a draw, but, like, it easily could have kept going on and on, because my opponent had a deck that can do the sorts of things and in general i think because modern magic is played at a competitive level and that's a big part of the game you can't have features like that be prominent so what happens if storm gets more popular you know i, I feel like storm has a similar condition at times where opponent is storming off and it takes a really long time and sometimes games go to time like i think that in and of itself isn't indicative that a deck needs to go I think it is, and I think it's just because Storm's going to time is more of a rarity, where it feels like almost by default, either Eggs has to win very quickly, or you're just going to go to time. And that's just sort of the nature of it. It's more inherent that, like, this is a deck that does this, while Storm, like, can sometimes do that, but that isn't the default where Storm is just like, give me a second, give me, I'm going off still, one more second, one more second. It feels like they can sort of get to... um end of the loop or end of the outcome sooner where it's okay i'm going to cast grape shot storm count 30 what do you do now and like it's how you respond to this is how it ends where eggs can be a little less clear than that where you have a bunch of creatures but it's not clear you can win right away or you want more creatures or you don't have that one hate card you need etc so i feel like i get where you're coming from in that both decks kind of push it but i think one pushes it on a more consistent and inherent basis i mean i think to me it kind of we want to see some proof and see some GPs have some some rounds go along before they do that. So if if it's not, I, I guess what I would say is that I don't think it's going to get banned for a while mm -hmm. if it's not due to power level. I think it's going to take some time to have that happen. Sure. Um, it's definitely possible. Let's see if we get some data on rounds going long. I, I personally don't think this deck is necessarily powerful enough to to eat a ban either. I just I, I think it is probably the most powerful deck still. I just don't think I'm going to play it because it wasn't that fun for me. You know, like I literally, I, I swear to God, I, I fell asleep comboing off while I was playing this one night at like 1.30 in the morning, like in the middle of being like, click, 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 click. Like I fell asleep while I was doing it. Like Dave, maybe brutal. you should just go to bed sooner. Yeah. I don't know, Stan. The issue is clearly the deck. It's not with Dave's sleep schedule. <laughs> I have... I have to, I have to, <laughs> I, <am. laughs> I have to grind games for the podcast. I have to <laughs> spittle at the corners of the mouth, forehead, just red. <laughs> this is what I go to bring, go through to bring you the content. Everybody. I just want you to understand that <laughs> the, the struggle. This is for you nation. Yeah. So there you have it, folks. Three decks, one dive, get into it. You know how to beat it. If you're going to play this deck, try to play at a reasonable speed. Try to figure out how to win as quickly as possible so you don't get this banned inadvertently. If you do, it's <laughs> your own fault. Don't let it be you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we've got a listener question for the wind down. Stay with us. 
So this week's listener question comes from friend of the show and patron Dom, who asks, with lots of time devoted to the podcast and specific deck dives, and presumably the need to consume so much magic content, what part of your overall game skill has improved the most in starting the dive down, and what part has suffered the most? So this is a pretty personal question. We're about to get vulnerable over here. After I got super vulnerable last week with my question being on the wind down, we're gonna we're gonna do it again. Wait, that was I you. Knew it. <laughs> hmm. See, I've been upon the Big Daddy Five. I didn't know that was your boat. Mm. I mean, you were there, but I didn't know it was your boat. I'm, I'm a very Gatsby character at parties, anyway. Stan, what do you think? Yeah. So this is an interesting one because I feel like on some level I've become a worse magic player. But on another level, I've become much smarter with regards to modern because all this time that I spend testing decks like Urza or humans or Tron or whatever our deck dive of the week is, mill for that matter, it often doesn't translate to the decks that I'm super interested in playing in paper for myself and my own enjoyment of the game and, and the hobby that brought me into starting the dive down in the first place. So you know, the opportunity to get reps and figure out like how to be a better pilot of Blue Moon or Kiki Jiki or whatever I want to play in paper is is lost. And I think sometimes my performance suffers because of that. But then on the other hand, because I get to play all these other decks and really study the format and its evolution on a weekly basis, I feel like I know modern better than ever. And I can identify decks faster than ever. I know how to beat more decks and what sideboard tech is better than ever. My role in matchups is clear to me now. And things like using Artifact Hate to beat Tron is something I don't think I would have discovered until I piloted Tron myself. So it's a constant tug of war. It's a double-edged sword of the meek. It's a sacrifice I'm willing to make to be a better podcaster. But I think I'm giving up losses as a result. So I feel like what I've gotten best at overall is I mulligan smarter than I used to. And I feel like I used to keep very greedy hands and sort of think about the what if, like, I need one more land here. What if I had that land? What if I could cast that Blood Moon? I feel like because of the help that I've gotten from Shane and Dave and really their logical side of thinking, I've been making more statistically informed decisions and just thinking more about how the numbers or the math adds up for me. But I feel like what I've gotten less good at is that I have, I used to be, I used to only play one deck. I used to only play Scred, then I played Prison. And I had really good heuristics. I knew my matchups. I knew my lines. But now I feel like, as Stan alluded to, because I've really spread myself out, some of the heuristics and lines don't transfer over, and you can get a little cross-wire sometimes, where you think, oh, yeah, I do this against Tron. And then you can go, oh, this deck doesn't run those cards. Ooh, I just plan for an out I don't actually have. And that, you know, that's part of me learning and me trying to, like, okay, so when you think of heuristics, this isn't just a, a general area. You got to think of heuristics for this deck. And I think that's something that I'm going to grow with and get better at over time. But although my mulligans have increased, I've been making more misplays because I forget what is in my deck. Yeah, I mean, I think that my answer is a little bit of a combination of both of yours. It's really hard to argue with the idea that the most skill that's improved for me has been just knowledge of other decks, right? Like Stan said, I'm playing these other decks, I'm thinking about them and thinking about what they have to do and trying to win, trying to get my ticks back out of every league that we do for the dive down. And that does help when you're on the flip side, when you're playing against a, a different deck or when you are playing against humans and remembering when you piloted humans, you know, what's important for them, what should I be killing, all that kind of stuff. The 
downside that's happened for me is I've gotten a little impatient, I think, honestly, with decks that I'm playing, with what I'm doing when I'm when I'm playing a league on my own. Like I tend to concede a little bit more quickly now because I'm trying to jam more games. And I'm probably closing myself off to some outs. I'm making rash decisions sometimes just in the in the need to kind of like jam in as much testing, but maybe I'm not doing it as quality as I as I was at certain points of time. And so, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week when I asked about how to break out of a slump. I'm definitely consciously trying to slow down a little bit so that I can actually pay attention to the decisions I'm making instead of trying to be like, okay, I'm going to turn the page and go to the next game now. Um, I need the data. I need yeah, the data. Like, I need the data off of the draw. But what I really need to do is make sure I'm thinking about how to play each game all the way through instead of just giving up in a situation that seems hopeless or just making a mistake by accident because I'm I only have a certain amount of time to play. Um, and then I am also, you know, falling asleep in the middle of comboing off with with decks more often than I was before. One thirty is a great time to league. I don't care what Stan says. Oh man, the 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 problem is when you start another league at two thirty. That's when you really know. <laughs> That's when you really know you're in it. So there's one positive that I want to touch on that I don't think would have ever happened if we didn't start this podcast. And I'm not trying to sound sappy. Like it's kind of amazed me how many interesting, thoughtful, amazing people we've met as a result of this podcast and our Patreon and our Slack. But not only that, like my name on MTGO is Stanislav. And every single day without fail at least one person will ask me if i'm from the dive down and it's like really cool and touching to see that like we're touching so many people's lives and they keep hearing us and i lose to our listeners a lot which is <laughs> i don't know if i should be embarrassed i i, I you should be honored yeah. that's funny one thing I would like to say really quick, because I'm jealous of the fact that Stan and Shane get recognized on on Moto a lot. My my screen name is Halo Bender, <laughs> by the way, and I don't think anybody well, knows that. So if if you do see my me out there, feel free to say hi. It's because it's no Halo one Bender. listens to the Halo Benders, Dave, except for they you. They should. They were they were a good indie did band. It, but at any it, rate, did it. everyone, thanks for the heartwarming, true to heart, kind hearted big-hearted discussion. And I think that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, why not? If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick a brain anything in modern, tweet us at the dive down. that's all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Joining at any tier gets you access to our super-secret Slack channel. We live in our patrons there. So that's patreon.com slash thedivedown. Also, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the Dive Down. Sent for Mana Traders using promo code the Dive Down, all one word, for 10% off your first three months of writing paper and online magic cards. And as always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood, letting us use their music. So until next week, get out there and make a Karnstrom! We're starting with that? No, 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 no. That's the last thing, please. Well, you know what? How about we do a little sandwich? Okay. Zach up top, Dave at the bottom, all soggy, sort of, you don't really want that piece. But the top piece, untouched, on top of the lettuce. Okay. I hated it. I hated it so freaking much.